Thanks for listening. If you'd like to schedule a one-on-one coaching with Dr. Lodi, please visit drsudliff.com. I am an American board certified OBGYN, a mom, a Muslim, and I'm talking about sex. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast. Welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sadaf Lodi. And in this episode, you will learn everything you need to know about breast cancer survivorship. But before I get into it, the first thing I want to make very clear is that I am not giving any type of medical advice. So if you are having any medical issues, issues, please go see your healthcare provider. And I am not giving any type of religious advice. So if you have any religious questions, please see your friendly neighborhood religious leader. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast because I just happen to be a Muslim woman that talks about sex. So today I am so, so happy to have on with me Dr. Corinne Men. She is a fellow OBGYN. Yay! <laughs> and um, Dr. Men is going to talk about her journey through breast cancer and her survivorship and how she is doing and what is important for you to know so that you can advocate for yourself and intimacy issues that may happen as a result of breast cancer treatment and um, chemotherapy and or radiation and body image issues. So a lot of a lot of things that go into this. So Dr. Men, I am so, so happy to welcome you and happy to have you on. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. And uh, yeah, we go way back. We have lots of we have lots of things in common through our professional <laughs> careers. I'm so excited of, you know, about what you're doing for women and getting messages out. Um, to women who really need it. So thank you for what you're doing. So yeah, I'll just introduce myself, I guess. Um, so Dr. Corinne Men, um, I'm a board certified, you know, OBGYN. Um, I've been practicing for over 20 years. Um, I'm also a North American Menopause Society, NAMS. You'll hear that. I'll throw the NAMS turn out term out a lot um, on the episode, probably. I'm a NAMS certified menopause practitioner. And over the past decade, I've really um, focused my practice on healthcare needs of women that I felt were really underserved, particularly perimenopause and menopause management, and dealing with women's healthcare needs um, after they've undergone a breast cancer diagnosis or really any cancer diagnosis, especially younger women. So really focusing on the collateral damages of cancer treatments on a woman's health, um, and really, um, you know, helping with survivorship. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. So, well, thank you for doing what you do. Um, you know, I know that uh, you were, you had mentioned before that you were diagnosed at the age of 28. So maybe you could go a little bit into what happened and how you came to find out that you had breast cancer and what was, you know, what were the treatments that you ended up having and all that stuff. Sure. So when I was 28 years old, I was a second year OBGYN resident in New York City. And it was 2001. So New York City, 2001, 9-11 had happened. It was, that was September, 9-11 happened. I felt a small lump in my breast. It was very mobile. It was um, just underneath the skin. It felt like a small little, 
like a little hard peat, but it was really, it was easy to move. Um, it didn't, there was no skin changes. And I wasn't really that worried. I was like, oh, it's probably a little sister fibrodenoma. As a doctor, I had never heard of women in their 20s getting breast cancer. Yeah. And frankly, I was really too busy learning to be a doctor to be a patient. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of just watched it and I had some of my colleagues, you know, feel it. Some of my female colleagues, they're like, oh, it's a fibrodenoma, Corinne, you're, you're 28. Actually, I was actually 27. <laughs> and so I had turned 28 in December. Um, and in um, a month later, and this is, this would be a, a talk for another time, but my mom died suddenly of ovarian cancer and she was only 54. We have no family history of um, breast or ovarian cancer, no reason to suspect that we were a high risk family in any way whatsoever. And so after her funeral, this was November of 2001, I was like, oh man, you know, it's been two menstrual cycles and nothing's changed with this little lump. I should probably get it checked out. I was not alarmed whatsoever. Fast forward a couple of weeks later, finally get it um, checked out. They immediately refer me to get um, an ultrasound and a biopsy. And uh, even then, I wasn't I wasn't worried. Looking back now, I'm like, what was wrong with me? But I went about my business. And a couple of days later, they paged me in the middle of prenatal clinic, which you know how crazy and busy that is. Yeah. And here I am just sitting with a patient alone in a room. And I get a page and I pick up the phone. And they're like, sorry, Corinne, it's cancer. And oh my God. that's when, you know, kind of my life changed. Um, and <laughs> And when I tell my story, I like to talk about how what I learned, obviously, as a patient and how I experienced it, but what I learned as a doctor and what not to do and what not to say and how to deliver messages. And it really changed how I practice medicine, you know, sure. starting with that very first page in the middle of prenatal clinic. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, that was the lead up. And then to make a long story short, I was basically diagnosed with ERPR positive, estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor positive, HER2 new negative, um, breast cancer, stage two. My lump was about a centimeter um, and a half um, in one breast and decided on having um, a mastectomy on one side and um, immediate um, reconstruction afterwards with a tissue expander. Um, and then, you know, found out that one of my lymph nodes was positive. So um, I was told I was going to need to have chemotherapy in addition to the mastectomy. And kind of backing up a, for a minute, like when I was first diagnosed, I was, you know, I was young. I was 28. I was devastated. Everyone was like, oh, my God, even all the people in my residency program, no, all the doctors are like, oh, a young woman with breast cancer. It was not really on people's radar. It's a little bit more known now, but you know, breast cancer is still the number one cancer in women under 40, you know, wow. and women in their twenties can and do get breast cancer. Obviously it's much less, it's rare, but it does happen. So I was in a really unique situation in, do I do one, do I have one side of mastectomy? Do I have both breasts out? Like, what do I do? What about my fertility? I was recently married, thinking about maybe starting a family. So I was dealing with all this stuff all at once. And luckily, being in New York City, I was able to get in to see, you know, like kind of the top specialist at all the big centers, you know. And I finally chose the doctor who, you know, really um, understood my um, position as a young woman, because a lot of people were saying, just get a little lump back to me. We're going to ease you into breast cancer. And I was like, hmm. 
28. I've got a lump in my breast. My mom just had ovarian cancer and you just want me to get a little lump back to me. Finally, someone said to me, if you were my sister, I'd tell you to have a mastectomy. So I went with that surgeon. Wow. <laughs> and I'm glad I did. <laughs> so I had one one sided mastectomy and then I went and had um, six months of chemotherapy. And before chemotherapy, um, my husband and I, we were able to save two embryos just in case chemotherapy kind of killed my ovaries, which we'll get into. So before chemo, I did save um, some embryos. And then after chemotherapy, which we'll talk about and all of the kind of what that experience was like, I had um, decided that I was going to have the other breast removed. So once I recovered from chemotherapy, I decided to have a prophylactic mastectomy on the other side. That was all clean and normal, no signs of cancer in that breast. At the time, they were not recommending radiation for me, although now 20 years later, today's guidelines, I probably would have been given radiation if I was diagnosed today. Um, and after I had the other, you know, mastectomy done, I started on um, tamoxifen mm. to block, you know, the estrogen receptors and, you know, help lower, you know, risk of recurrence. So, and at the same time, they gave me a shot to, um, you know, put me into menopause. So, that all happened in the course of a year while I was still a young OBGYN resident. And so, you know, I kind of juggled treatment, surgery, chemotherapy, and working as a resident. I took a, a sh very short leave of absence, but kind of continued working. So. Wow, Corinne. <laughs> that is a lot. It is a lot. <laughs> and so the one thing I left out is that, you know, at the time, no one really encouraged me to get genetic testing to see yeah. if you know, maybe I was a carrier. Remember this is 2001 and it was just, it was, it was just not as much Common. as even doctors radars. They're like, Oh, well you can get it, but you're probably be negative. And meanwhile, like my mom had just died of ovarian cancer, but anyways, the, you know, in the, I was treating myself like I had a genetic mutation because I decided to, you know what? Yes. It's still early stage. I could have had a little lumpectomy, but I did choose to have, you know, both breast removed. So I kind of put the genetic testing, you know, to the back of my mind for a while and just got through treatment. And then a few years later, I did have genetic testing and it was negative. It showed no mutations, but this is the kicker. Fast forward many years later, um, around you know, 20, 2013, I got a call from a cousin mm -hmm. who I hadn't spoken to in a long time. And she um, told me, that um, a very astute primary care doctor took a very detailed family history and said, you know, you've got a cousin with breast cancer and an aunt with ovarian, you should get this BRCA1 and 2 test. And so she did. And turns out she was positive. She had a BRCA2 mutation. So she calls me up, hadn't talked to her for years. And I was like, well, that's funny. You've got a mutation and no cancer. I'm like, I think I need to check into my testing. So I called my oncologist. And I did a little research, and this is an important message to anybody who's listening, because many women out there have either had their their family members were tested or they themselves were tested. If you were tested before 2012, for one, the BRCA1 and 2 gene test did not carry the large, it, it didn't run the large um, uh, rearrangement. There's a part of the gene, I'm not saying it right, it's the BART sequence, It's there's a rearrangement of the gene there that was not considered standard um, of care in terms of the testing. So my my panel did not include that. So I asked for you know, my test to be redone and sure enough, 
I was positive for BRCA2. Now this was, this is many years later. So at that point I had already had my, my, my breasts removed and we'll talk about, I had, I had also had at that point my ovaries removed. So I had kind of done all of my preventative kind of, you know, treatment for, you know, reducing my risk of recurrence or ovarian cancer. But I'm so glad that I found out that I was positive because then I told my brother and he is a positive carrier. I told my aunt, she's positive. Um, and just recently I tested my 18 year old daughter and unfortunately she's a carrier. Um, but you know what, it's okay because now we can be super proactive and give her options on how she can, you know, stay safe. So, you know, that's another big part of my story is kind of like through my own kind of pushing and advocacy on my genetic testing, my family history, it, it wasn't, it, it, I only found out because I pushed to get right. It, right? And I'm a doctor and I'm an OBGYN who specializes in this kind of stuff. So, you know, it makes me really alarmed that there's a lot of women out there who, you know, don't know that one, that they might qualify for genetic testing or that they really should probably have an update test. Cause it's not just only looking at the BRCA one and two gene. Now we have these panel testing, um, panel tests that will look at many different genes responsible for lots of different, um, you know, cancers, or, you know, there's many genes in particular for, for breast cancer. It's just not the BRCA one and two gene. So that, that was, um, kind of another interesting, um, part of my story, the genetic part. But really what, you know, I really want to talk about with you is kind of the collateral damage and the premature menopause, you know, that I yeah. went through because that's really what um, made me um, kind of change my practice. Um, the the severe premature menopause that I went through, you know, due to treatment. Sure. Sure. Yeah, no. Wow. That's, so much, Corinne. I'm I'm so impressed by you, and you know how you're able to really put things in perspective. I'm re I really admire the fact that you you know advocated for yourself, and I think that's something that we take for granted as physicians. You know, because we do have that knowledge, and when we think that there might be something wrong, you know, it's it's good that we know how to advocate for ourselves. But absolutely, for anyone out there that's listening that uh, may think that there's something going on, you know, with their own breasts, definitely have it checked out and, you know, advocate for yourself, even if you don't have that medical background. So mm -hmm. yeah, let's, uh, let's definitely talk about, you know, what were the things that um, happened after once you had your mastectomy, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of body image issues from disfiguring surgery, the loss of estrogen, you know, partner issues and premature menopause. So let's get into that a little bit. Yeah, sure. And I'll just mention that, you know, anybody who's listening, no matter what age you are, but in particular, younger women tend to be, their symptoms tend to be ignored in terms of they have a breast lump. Um, I'm very involved with the Young Survival Coalition, which advocates for women who are diagnosed under the age of 40. And literally, time and time again, countless stories of women being told you're too young, or it's just a cyst, or just wait, or very often you're breastfeeding. Oh, it's just from breastfeeding. Many younger women are misdiagnosed and their diagnosis is delayed because of, um, particularly because of breastfeeding. So, you know, you're never too young. And if one doctor says, eh, you just, you just go somewhere else. You, you have to be your best advocate. So getting back to kind of the collateral damage. So I like to kind of tell the story in this way. 
is that I went through menopause three times. Yeah, not once, but three times. So people are like, how is that even possible? So the first time I dealt with um, menopause from the breast cancer treatments was during chemotherapy. So when you um, are taking cytotoxic chemotherapy, like I was, it it stops cells from rapidly dividing, including, um, you know, your cells in your ovary that are producing, you know, eggs and such. So for many women, it can temporarily or permanently stop your ovaries from functioning. So luckily for me, because I was 28 at diagnosis and my ovaries were more resilient, um, I eventually recovered my ovarian function. But for about nine months during chemotherapy and then a few, a, number of months afterwards, um, I was in a temporary, um, I call it iatrogenic chemotoxic menopause, you know? So, and at the time I didn't know whether it was the side effects of chemotherapy or whether it was, you know, the menopause looking back, I think a lot of my, um, a lot of the side effects or the, you know, the problems I was having, a lot of it was from the sudden, you know, loss of estrogen from my ovaries shutting down, mainly yeah. um, terrible fatigue, insomnia, terrible mood changes, obviously depression and anxiety for many reasons. I'm going through cancer as a young person. Um, hot flashes, heart palpitations, anxiousness, all of these things. So, and nobody at any one time, no one said to me, no doctor, no oncologist, no nurse, nobody was like, and I, I was too busy just trying to muddle through. No one said, oh, there's there's some things we can do to help you. So luckily, I got through chemo and I was like, okay, my ovaries, I finally got a period again. I was like, okay, this is good. Like, So they gave me a couple months and then they're like, all right, it's time to go on tamoxifen. Oh. Tamoxifen, contrary to what a lot of people think, if people have heard of the tamoxifen, tamoxifen is a medication that is a selective estrogen receptor modulator. And it just blocks the little estrogen receptors that are on your cells. And there's estrogen receptors throughout your body, in your breast tissue, your brain, your bones, your vagina, your uterus, everywhere, your skin. And um, it selectively blocks receptors in certain tissue and it promotes the estrogen in other tissues. So it does not put you into menopause. There's this misconception that tamoxifen does that. So my periods had come back. I was feeling a little bit better again. They added tamoxifen and I really was tolerating it very well. Um, and after two months of it, they said, well, you know, let's lower your estrogen levels. So you're on the tamoxifen, it's blocking those estrogen receptors of any little breast cancer cells that could be lingering out there. But at the time they thought it would be helpful to also lower my estrogen levels. So they gave me a shot, something called Lupron that once again, chemically put me into, um, you know, menopause. So that was menopause number two. Um, this time, I think it was, I don't, I don't know whether I can say it was worse, but it, it felt really bad because I had just finally started feeling better. My energy was back. I was able to have sex. My vagina wasn't dry. I, you know, was sleeping a little bit better. And all of a sudden, they're giving me this shot that kind of chemically is putting me back into menopause. Yeah. So that was really hard. And I think it was after maybe six months of dealing with all those menopausal symptoms. Again, one of the nurses in the um, oncology clinic was like, Corinne, I think you could use a little, a little Celexa. Just, it's a little, you know, it's a SSRI kind of like Prozac. Um, 
and it's been known to help with um, hot flashes and you know anxiety and sometimes some of the sleep stuff um, because at the time they're like you know we can't give you your hormones back we're trying to lower your hormones so that was very helpful but looking back it was way long overdue and it really makes me really angry that no one stopped and thought like oh my goodness here's this young woman dealing with all this stuff I mean I should kick myself I should have known but Again, I was too busy learning to be a doctor to take care of myself properly as a patient. And it was just overwhelming. Um, So that was like, that's like a little spark that I'll always remember that they could have been proactive with me in a lot of ways. And we'll get to like the different ways you can help breast cancer um, patients deal with their, their, their side effects. So, um, so yeah. So then after doing the Lupron and the Tamoxifen for about two years, me and my oncologist, we decided they were they were allowed me to take a break because my husband and I really wanted to try to get pregnant naturally. And um, so I went off the Lupron, periods came back right away because I was, you know, luckily my ovaries were still resilient enough. And, you know, after one month of trying, boom, I got pregnant. Literally, we had sex once, like I was pregnant. <laughs> that was it. And I'm amazing. That never <laughs> happens. <laughs> I, mean, I got pregnant and I mean not to be too explicit, we had sex and like, you're going to laugh. Like I was in the car, I was still a resident. I went in, like, I think it was like 17 days later after having sex and I drew my own blood in the resident call room. Oh my Because I didn't want anybody to know how crazy I was, but I was so desperate to be pregnant. Like that was one of the hardest things that I was told that like maybe I would never get pregnant. It still makes me feel emotional thinking about it because there I was delivering babies and all of my fellow OBGYNs, we had like, we were, uh, our whole program was all females. They were all getting pregnant. So we had pregnant doctors. I'm taking care of pregnant patients, delivering babies. I newly married. I really wanted to be a mom, right? So boom, drum my blood, pregnant, had a healthy baby girl. That's Ava. She's the one who is now 18 and is a BRCA2 carrier. So the whole thing's come full circle. So um, anyway, so I went off my Tamoxifen and got pregnant. That was wonderful. As soon as I delivered Ava, um, I, um, at that point, went back on Tamoxifen. And this time I was like, I'm not doing the loop run, people. That was my decision between me and my doctor that I, I couldn't deal with the kind of chemical menopause. So I just kind of stayed on Tamoxifen for um, a couple of years. And then... Um, so yeah, so then, so that was the second time of menopause. So the third time, um, was when this one, this was the hardest. So during chemotherapy, the Young Survival Coalition, um, has wonderful support groups. Um, and I was able to meet another young woman who I became very, very close with. She became like a sister. We, we went through chemotherapy together. We had very similar diagnosis, although hers was a little bit, more aggressive and a little bit more likely to recur than mine, but it was still considered early stage. Um, anyways, she also um, wound up getting married after cancer, found the love of her life, got pregnant, had a beautiful baby girl, but she delivered that baby girl prematurely. They thought she had preeclampsia. They did an emergency C-section, um, but in fact, she had severe metastatic disease, breast cancer disease. She was, and she died two weeks later with her baby in the NICU. She was my best friend um, from my cancer treatments. And so while I was holding her literally in the hospital, um, my husband 
while she was dying, my husband pulled me aside and was like, yeah, you're never getting pregnant again, Corinne. You're going to stay on your tamoxifen. You're going to do what you need to do. Um, you know, we've got too much to lose. I can't let this happen to you. Um, that was a bit of a probably emotional knee-jerk reaction because I will say the positive news is we know now there's been a recent study out that um, looking at all the data over the past 20 years that um, pregnancy is for women who are on hormone therapy, like I was, it is, it is safe to take a break to get pregnant and then you can go back on your therapy, that there's not an increased risk of your breast cancer recurring and you're not at a worse prognosis long-term. So, you know, in retrospect, my friend who passed away, her, her breast cancer was going to probably come back regardless of her pregnancy. And it was probably already metastatic before she even had a baby, just in a small amount that was not detectable. So, but at the time it was very scary and it was terrible. And that's when I left the health center, um, if you recall. And I, um, at that point, I decided we were going to adopt. So we adopted um, our second child. We did an international adoption from Guatemala, and she's now 16 and just the love of our lives. Um, but once I once we completed the adoption, I said, all right, we've, I've got my two daughters. Um, I, I don't need any more children at this point. And my mom died of ovarian cancer. And they've told me I'm genetically negative because at this point, I didn't have my, my updated results. But I just took it upon myself. There was like, I just had this gut feeling. I was like, I just want these ovaries out. So I was at this point, I was about 30, I think I was 34 then. So I went in and I had these ovaries taken out and guess what? Overnight I went into menopause number three, permanent surgical menopause. Um, and I was still on tamoxifen at the time. And that didn't make anything any worse because again, tamoxifen does not put you into menopause. There can be some some side effects to tamoxifen. Some women might feel some hot flashes. You know, they kind of some um, menopause-like effects, but it doesn't put you in to menopause. So, so there I was, 34, menopause number three, surgical. And at this point, I was in a busy OBGYN practice, um, private practice, and I was seeing more and more women coming in with menopausal um, complaints and seeing a lot of young survivors just because they had heard my story and stuff. And I kind of just realized I don't know enough as a doctor to take care of these women. I kind of knew what worked for me in my own experience, but I felt like I didn't have enough training in cancer survivorship or, or menopause care. So that's when I decided to, I found the North American Menopause Society and became certified and did professional education. Um, through them and uh, started to realize like I didn't really have to suffer as much as I was suffering because with the surgical menopause, it was different than the others in that it was just the utter, utter removal of any circulating levels of, you know, estrogen and progesterone. So it was the most dramatic. And within like two months, I gained a bunch of weight, my thyroid crapped down, um, sex was very painful, no, you know, no lubrication, decreased sensitivity. And that's when I started to learn, wait, wait, we can do something about this. Um, so that was, that was really kind of the, the mark where I really started to shift from that full-time OBGYN practice to this more kind of specialty 
care. And that's when I finally started getting a bit more involved with the Young Survival Coalition because it had taken me a number of years to really want to be around the breast cancer community in a strong way because it was very triggering and really traumatic for me. So, so yeah, that's how I got to where I am. <laughs> wow, that's a lot, Corinne. Well, it's, it's kind uh, of a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is a lot. So <laughs> yeah. thank you for sharing all of that. You know, um, I'm sure that your diagnosis really, you know, was difficult for you and your partner and your relationship. And I'm wondering, you know, how how you worked on increasing intimacy you know, within your relationship while undergoing everything that you were undergoing? Well, I would say, first of all, I probably didn't handle it very well because I didn't have somebody like you, someone who I could have used a sexual therapist or a coach, you know, and frankly, this is one of the aspects of cancer survivorship care um, or someone who's actively undergoing treatment. They really should not be sent, they, they shouldn't be left wondering, you know, what do I do with the side effects you know, affecting my sex life. Like this should be an integral part of their treatment plan. Um, and I always use it as an, an example. You know, my dad was diagnosed with prostate cancer. He's fine. It was early stage, but I went to his doctor's appointments with him. And in the first visit, that is a major point that they talk about. Like, okay, you've got prostate cancer. Here's your treatment options. Here's how it's going to affect your sex life. This is what we can do. Here's the, the, the effect of surgery or radiation and the medications and risks and benefits. And it all came back to preserving their sexual function. Okay. Have you ever seen a patient who has gone to their GYN surgeon, their GYN oncologist, their breast oncologist, and that at the first thing they're like, okay, you might go through menopause or this might affect your body image and you may not like how you look anymore and that may you know, affect your sex life and you may not have desire and you may have physical symptoms that make it painful, but guess what? We can do stuff for you. Nobody talks about it. Never. So this is, I mean, yeah. And so it's a, it, this is an example of the inequities between the genders when it comes to cancer treatment and survivorship. So yeah. So getting back to your question, like I didn't manage it that well. And looking back, I was a busy mom. I was working. I was dealing with this premature menopause. Luckily, I had a healthy relationship with my husband who had been with me through it all. Um, and he was really understanding. But I think that, yeah, um, looking back, I could have managed it a lot better. What I finally learned, and I didn't do it right in the beginning, was that one, you have to first treat um, what well, you have to know that you've got like the physical aspects of the sexual dysfunction from, from cancer treatments, which could be many of things. Obviously we talked about vaginal dryness, decreased lubrication, sensitivity from the lack of estrogen. If someone had radiation in the pelvis because of some other, you know, a pelvic cancer or colon cancer, radiation changes could be very, you know, difficult. Um, you mentioned the body image, like here I am, my late twenties, you know, this is when you're supposed to be kind of in your prime, right? And I've lost my breasts. I had really nice breasts. I look back, I'm sad. Those were beautiful breasts. Um, my body changed. I got much thicker in the middle. I lost my curve, you know, um, you gain weight a little bit, um, more abdominal and visceral fat when you go through menopause. Um, so, you know, I didn't feel as sexy kind of you know, and then I, when you have a mastectomy, even though my reconstruction, I think is nice and they did a good job on it. Um, and when I wear a bra or bathing suit, I feel like, you know, 
the cleavage looks good and all that, but like naked, it doesn't look the same. There's a scar, there's a tattoo for a nipple. It's faded. It's like 10 years old. It looks silly. You know, so like that, and then there's no sensation. There was no, there, you, you know, lose all, even though you have a breast that's reconstructed, there is no nerve endings there in the same way that a woman who has a natural breast. Um, and we'll talk about that. There are things that can be done now. There's new surgeries now where they can preserve the nerve and um, and and also save the nipple and the areola. Um, at the time in 2001, when I was treated, that was not considered safe to save the nipple. Now we we do do that more standard, and they can also, like I said, there's some surgeons out there doing things to preserve um, the sensitivity to that nipple, which would be a real game changer sexually for breast cancer survivors but I didn't have that. So, um, so yeah, the, the first thing is treating the physical stuff, but then having somebody, you know, kind of talking and coaching you about how to deal with the, the body image. I was lucky. My partner thought I was sexy no matter what, because he's a great guy, but I've had countless patients who are, you know, their relationships are really traumatized by it because their partners are just like, yeah, I don't find you sexy anymore. Like you're bald, you lost your hair or your, your breasts or, you know, like that was part of my sexual attraction to you. And so that's really hard. And, you know, that's a heavy relationship thing when someone is an understanding of the disfigurement that has happened and not being supportive of their partner. So, you know, that's a big piece of the puzzle. I didn't have to deal with that part, but I think a lot of women do. Um, so there's a physical part, there's the body image part, um, and then there's the depressed desire part from just forget the physical aspect, just like the central desire from your brain. And obviously that's very complex, you know, there's lots of reasons why. Um, but once again, you know, even as a doctor, I don't really ever, I never spoke about it with my GYN because maybe because I'm a fellow GYN and I think like, well, what is she going to tell me? Like, I, I don't know. I never really brought it up. And so I can imagine how, you know, women who aren't doctors feel. Yeah. Um, but as you know, as a sex coach and therapist and, you know, specialist in this field, you know, there's a lot that can be done, you know? Absolutely. absolutely. And, you know, to your end, what you say that, you know, you never spoke to your gynecologist, but really I would say, Karen, that we're just not taught in residency, right? Not we just all. do not get that training for, you know, sexual health, sexual wellness, any of that stuff, menopause, and any of those things that, um, you know, pertain to our life really after childbearing years, we don't learn about. Nope. So if we're interested, we need to find out on our own, right? And that's why you went ahead and you got your certification, you know, through the Menopause Society. I went ahead and I'm getting more, you know, training and certification on sexual counseling and education because we just don't get that. So even if you would have spoken to your gynecologist, you know, I wonder what the response would have been because they probably wouldn't even have known how to address it. They would, they would, I, I, I've, I've heard what doctors say to other women. They say, oh, if I had a dime for every patient that asked me that, I'd be a millionaire. There's nothing I can do. Or, or you know, what about my dry vagina? No one ever said like, okay, it's safe for breast cancer survivors to use local topical vaginal estrogen. It comes in lots of forms, creams and pills and, and little rings. And I'm not talking systemic hormone therapy that you and I will talk about on another episode, hopefully, but, but I'm talking about just treating the estrogen deficient state of the genitourinary tissue. The guidelines have been around for years that it's safe for the far majority of breast cancer survivors. Um, and 
if for some reason the doctor thought it wasn't safe, there are other things that you could offer a breast cancer survivor like hyaluronic acid, there's vaginal moisturizers, there's lubricants. Um, but it really makes me angry that patients are basically told to just deal with it or, or just use lube, which we know that's not like an acceptable answer um, when someone has a lot of tissue, you know, problems there. So that's just one example of how like, that's a simple thing that most OBGYNs should know <laughs> and they don't. So imagine asking them about like sexual desire and all that. They have no idea. Um, and I think it's a lot that I think OBGYNs, there's a lot of pressure put on us though. I mean, women ask me, why are so many doctors? Like, how come my doctor doesn't tell me? I said, you know, what? I'm going to defend your doctor in one way. Um, we're expected in a busy private practice as you know, you and I have both been in to see a patient every 10 minutes, minutes yeah. 10, 15 minutes yeah. tops, right? Yeah. Um, and that's an annual exam. So you're doing all kinds of preventative health stuff. It takes time. There's a physical exam portion, the pap smear, the breast exam, all of that. And then at the end of that, a patient, oh, do you have any questions? Well, I mean, we're spending a whole podcast just talking about one little aspect. Think about all the information that patients need and just the time spent. So doctors don't have the time. You pointed out they don't have the training because people don't realize our residencies are highly surgical. We're in the OR or we're on the labor floor. We're not as much in the clinics. And if we're in the clinic, we're in the clinic seeing prenatal patients or we're in the clinic seeing surgical cases or pre-op cases, right? So there's a tiny bit of time spent on on sexual health, um, on perimenopause, on menopause and, and other issues too. So there's no like man doctor out there. Like a man doesn't just go to the man doctor and take care of all his man problems. A man goes to his different specialists. But for women, they go to the OBGYN and we're expected to do it all, right? So there's a lot yeah. of pressure. Plus yeah. we're, you know, very, it's a litigious environment where OBGYNs work in. Uh, you know, we have a very high malpractice rate. And so I tell patients, your OBGYN is probably a little bit risk adverse. They, they're afraid of being sued, frankly. I mean, that's just the state we live in. So if you bring up the word breast cancer and hormones, they're like, oh, they, they freak out, right? So for the breast cancer survivor, they are really kind of left in the dust. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with everything you're saying. I think it's very tough. And especially, you know, if you did residency around the same time that you and I did, right? A whole generation of OBGYNs does not feel comfortable prescribing hormone replacement therapy, including myself. And only after speaking with you do I now start, you know, have started feeling more comfortable offering hormone replacement therapy, right? And it was all because of that WHI study that came out that told us, oh, no, don't prescribe. And after that, nobody was prescribing anymore. Yeah. So I think that that, you know, really did a huge disservice to us. Yeah. And so uh, the breast cancer survivors are like, they're, they really became the bottom of the barrel when it came to um, addressing menopausal symptoms. Because what you referenced was really talking about like the general population women. So anyone who was deemed higher risk, they really were kind of, kind of ignored and shunned and been like, oh, we can't touch you with anything, you know? And so, right. yeah. Right. Absolutely. Well, we are almost out of time here, but please let our listeners and our viewers know, one, where they can go to get more information on breast cancer survivorship. Um, I know you had mentioned the Young Survivors Coalition a few times, so maybe you could tell them a little bit about that and also where, you know, how they can get in touch with you. How can they schedule a consult with you and uh, speak to you? Sure. So Young Survival Coalition is, I think, the top um, 
place for any younger woman um, to get information. So youngsurvival.org. Um, so they're amazing. Um, so I think for breast health, that's the best source. Uh, if you just go to my website, it's just drmen.com. So drmen.com. Advice on my social media, Instagram and TikTok, Dr. Men, OBGYN. There, I have all the links there to the YSC. I have links to the North American Menopause Society statements. Um, and on my website, I've got specific sections for um, cancer survivorship, for menopause, and for women's health. So you're welcome to message me, DM me, message me, email me, get me on my contact through my website. And um, if I can't help you out, then I will, I always, particularly for the breast cancer survivor, um, if I'm not licensed in your state, because I, I do only telehealth now, so I and I am multi-state licensed, so I can see women in a lot of states. But if I if I can't see you, I can do a patient education consult, or I can I can refer you, I can help you out, and I'm always happy to speak to a fellow survivor if they need some navigation and some help. Awesome. Well, this has been so so helpful and enlightening. I think not only for myself but for all of our listeners and viewers. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And while we are done here, and it's been real and really intimate, and remember, this is not meant to be any type of medical advice. So if you're having any issues or you feel like you may have a lump or there's something going on, please, please speak with your healthcare provider and get help. And until next time, this is the Muslim Sex Podcast. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to schedule a one-on-one -on -one coaching with Dr. Lodi, please visit drsadaf.com. And until next time, this is the Muslim Sex Podcast.